Episode number 53, Astrid Jansen. Welcome back to the Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. And I am, as usual, your host, Michael Cruz. And this time I have an interview with legendary Canadian designer Astrid Jansen. I met with Astrid in her home in Toronto in November of 2018, and we discussed her early beginnings in Toronto working with the great George Luscombe at Toronto Workshop Productions and the dance icons at Toronto Dance Theatre. Her extraordinary career has spanned film and TV as well, including originating the costume designs for Al Waxman and the company on The King of Kensington, and she has designed opera all over Canada, the U.S., and Europe. First, I want to note the passing of two great Canadian theatre personalities, Suzanne Mess, whose costumes graced the stage at Canadian Opera Company and at the CBC, has passed away in January. We speak of her during this episode, and her name was prominent in my conversation with Martha Mann a few years ago. She was one of the original modern Canadian designers with her star rising in the 1950s and 60s, and she touched the lives of many of the designers in Toronto and at the CBC in the 1970s and 80s. Links to her work can be found in the show notes. And the longtime general manager at the Tarragon Theatre, Mallory Gilbert, left us just yesterday in February as I record this podcast. She served as the GM at Tarragon from 1972 until her retirement in 2006, a remarkable period in the growth of Canadian theatre. Mallory and Suzanne will be missed dearly. And now an errata, haha, for my interview with Glenn Davidson. To my shock and horror, and let's be honest, Maybe a little bit of bemusement. I received a happy text from designer Steve Lucas letting me know that I had errantly taken credit for work that he actually did. Uh, Glenn and I speak of working on uh, a show called The Honeyman by Andrew Ackman at the Theatre Center in 1994. And I said that I had designed it. Of course, my memory failed me. Steve was, of course, the lighting designer on the show with Glenn Davidson designing the set. Uh, I was some sort of tech on the install, and I don't even think I ran the show. Uh, oops. Uh, my apologies, Steve. That was a long time ago, and you, of course, uh, designed that show. Now, remember to visit the show notes for this episode. There are links to pictures from Astrid Jensen's portfolio and links to many of the people and companies we talk about in the show. And once again, thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon. If you want to support the show, please go to patreon.com slash the title block podcast and sign up for a monthly contribution. And now my conversation with designer Astrid Jansen. Astrid Jansen is a Toronto-based designer working in Canadian theater and abroad for over 45 years, which is a heck of a time. Uh, she and I are meeting in her beautiful apartment here in Toronto. Astrid, welcome to the title block. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to have you here. Now, you told me earlier that you started uh, or became aware of an interest in theater when you were quite young. You said eight years old <laughs> or seven or eight years old. How did that start? Tell me that story and how it became an important thing in your life. I think it wasn't as much theater as it was make-believe. Um, I loved the whole idea of creating little worlds in my room and different uh, from different 
cultures. I would make things and dress myself and pretend. I pretended, and I always enjoyed that, but I also found it a great escape for real life. And that, uh, did that uh, feeling or that, um, that must have carried you through middle school and high school as well, right? How did that uh, change over the years? Well, I did become, my teenage years, and especially at the end of high school and the beginning of university, I was very much a child of the 60s. And I became very politically involved, working with student movements and even going down to the U.S. to work in draft card burnings. And and that would have been about 66, maybe. And at that point, 67, I went, I guess I finished high school and I wanted to go to Europe and be in Europe where everybody, all the students were marching and that's how I ended up in Heidelberg for that semester. But out of that, and I remember my dad going with me to Toronto Workshop Productions in the 60s, and out of that grew an absolute passion for what I thought was political theater. And so that was always my goal. And when I started working in theater at Toronto Dance Theater, as soon as I heard, and I heard from the lighting designer, a guy named Ron Snipe, that the resident designer at Toronto Workshop had left after many years, she was one of the founders, I marched up there and presented myself because that had been my goal. I was determined no matter what, I was going to work at Toronto Workshop Productions. That's great. I want to talk all about Toronto Workshop Productions <laughs> because we don't have a lot of history that I'm aware of from those years. But before that, um, you trained, you, your first uh, kind of post-secondary experience was at Waterloo Lutheran University. Is that called Wilfrid Laurier now? Yeah, Okay. that's Wilfrid Laurier. Uh, and you f- majored in philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about that decision and what you were looking for. I think it was already very hooked into politics because there was a, I really wanted to study political um, philosophy and also ethics. But at an underground, undergraduate level, of course, it's not very intensive. It's pretty superficial in some ways. But I always uh, loved the reading and I, I always loved the ideas. Um, but I never loved the academic world. That was where the two collided. Uh, and then you decided to go to UBC, where mm-hmm. they had just, in, within a few years, started uh, a new theater program. Tell me about that a decision. A master's program. Oh, wait. Yeah, and that decision came from seeing Joy Coghill on the cover of McLean's magazine. And she was running the Vancouver Playhouse, but she had a resident designer. She had Brian Jackson as a resident designer in Cam Porteous as an assistant. So, um, and of course I had no training, but she did encourage me to apply to UBC. And uh, under Dr. John Brockington's uh, leadership at that time, they accepted me and they were, I was the only student, I was the only design student in my MA year. The other three students were uh, Richard Azunian, John Gray, the writer, and Larry Lillo, who's no longer with us. That's a remarkable it, pedigree. That's <laughs> a great yeah. class because I got to design all their shows. That's that was part of the training. Remarkable. Um, what kind of shows did you work on there, and uh, and how? Like, what was your experience like? That I, I well, I remember 
I also had to do some acting as part of the the you know background drama courses that I had never had. I had to do some acting at which I was very bad, and I remember doing summer stock. We had the in the undergraduates. We had what were called the golden years. Um, we had people like Brent Carver and Goldie Simple and Lauren Kennedy, and we had some great years. And I had to design this the summer stock shows, and I remember we did A Taste of Honey, which I really liked. I was very interested already in, the, in that kind of political work. Um, we did something called Terminal from the um, Living Theater, I think it was, where we all had to get starkers, and I have to say nobody thought twice about that. Um, and then I had to design their various master's thesis shows. And Richard chose um, a 1930s version of Much Ado that he turned into a musical. Uh, Larry picked um, a very bleak British show that I can't remember what it was. Very bleak from the sort of angry young men era. And John Gray picked something by a very obscure Belgian writer called... Can't remember. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. It's a long time ago. Yeah. Um, now, why design? Uh, I mean, we, we you talked about how you were kind of creating your own world when mm-hmm. you were very young, so it seems kind of logical. But did you think about any anything else, or was it always design and and working in the physical space that was your focus? It was always design, mainly because I was extremely shy, and I couldn't really bring myself to audition. When I was, you know, forced to be in something, it turned me into a nervous wreck. And so I think almost by default, but I always had tremendous respect for actors and great love for actors. Um, I don't imagine myself ever as a director, but um, I also have great admiration for directors. Uh, and how about uh, studio components? Did you do any studio work prior to coming to UBC, like drawing classes or art history or anything like that, or was that something that was always just a hobby? It was always just a hobby. I really didn't do much. But while I was at UBC, I then went to the Vancouver School of Art to do some um, sculpture. It wasn't even drawing. It was sculpture, mainly metal, which I really liked working in metal. And I have worked a lot in metal in my career. And I wanted to teach myself to be unafraid of the fire aspect of it. I wanted to teach myself how to weld or have them teach me how to weld. That's, uh, that's fantastic. Um, and so you uh, graduate uh, with an MA in theater design uh, in 1972. Uh, and what brings you back to Toronto? There was no work. As I said, Vancouver Playhouse was the the main professional theater, and it was kind of sewn up there. There was a bit of an arts club, but they didn't really um, have a lot of money at that time. And Tamanoos, which was kind of um, a group that formed from UBC, were totally into the black box and either naked or the black tights. There was very little. It was kind of an anti-design era. And I thought, I'm, I love Vancouver, I loved living there, um, but I, there isn't going to be any work. So that's when I got my list from my friend and came back to Toronto. Uh, and tell me about working through that list. What was your first big break? <laughs> Toronto <laughs> Dance Theatre on Lombard Street. Um, 
going up the stairs and running into Susan McPherson, who had just quit. She was a dancer, but she was also the costume designer for a lot of things. And Jim Plaxton, who was the general manager, asked me if I could uh, sew and cut dance costumes, and I thought, why not? Uh, so I got the job. I think they were just desperate. And I just walked up. It was pure luck. I just walked up the stairs. And uh, I had an affinity for dance, absolutely. Um, I loved doing it, and there was a kind of an abstract quality. Uh, the three artistic directors were very open, very um, uh, intense to work with, but really appreciative at the same time for somebody just quite young and green. But I also worked very hard. I, I taught myself the cutting late at night. I just practiced and practiced. Uh, I also went on tour with them. I, you know, I agreed to wash the underwear. Uh, it was they were they also got a lot out of me. Uh, and just remind us who the uh, artistic directors at the time were: um, David Earle, Patricia Beattie, and Peter Randazzo. Right. Uh, and uh, you said Jim was doing. Jim was doing set and lighting, uh. and um, whether he was also doing the management, I don't know how much longer he was doing the management as well, but he was around. Mm -hmm. I think I remember I, uh, I've spoken to Jim on the program, and I think that he's talked about that time in his life, so I'll refer the listeners back to my interview with Jim Plaxton mm -hmm. about those years as well. Um, and so, now, did you do much dance out at UBC, or was this um, a new... This was quite new. Yeah. This was, uh, yeah. And then what um, What was next? I mean, that seems like it was a big part of your, that year. Uh, how many years were you there? Like, what was the... I was there really only a, a year and a half. Like, one, it was a huge season for them because they were, we were at the St. Lawrence Center. So big, big shows. Um, and then Ron Snipe, who was doing the lighting... Uh, for Toronto Workshop Productions, but he was a lighting designer who also occasionally did dance. Uh, I bumped into him one day, and he was the one who told me that Nancy, who was the resident designer at Toronto Workshop Productions, had been a founding member, had left. And I think, I mean, loyalty aside, I marched up the street as quickly as I could. <laughs> right, to do the theater that you'd wanted to do for a long time, right? And that also turned into a very interesting and very lucky um, event because June Faulkner, who was the general manager, was on holidays. And so I, I got to see George Luscombe. Uh, I had a portfolio which was pretty slim and had mostly dance costumes in it for which... I think George probably would have had a fair amount of disdain. Uh, and he didn't even ask me to open it, fortunately. And we talked politics. And I told him I had been involved in the student movement, uh, the anti-Vietnam uh, movement, and a lot of... And we just talked and talked, and he said, all right, you're hired. You're hired at $120 a week, but you have to commit to being a resident designer, which means you're going to do everything. That's and remarkable. I did everything. Yeah. Um, now, my knowledge of Toronto Workshop Productions is pretty small. I didn't realize it was such a political company. What kind of work 
Um, can you give me some examples of what kind of work you did that year? And, and what, was their approach any different than sort of the regular process, or were they writing political theater for themselves, or how did that work? Uh, it was it, George had come from um, Joan Littlewood's British. He was her protege, and so it was very political the work and very left wing political. Um, the the thing that I the show that I started when right at that time, the one that Nancy had kind of left in, before it was realized was called Richard, Richard Two-Time, two Richard. It was, it was a, um, a mashup of Richard III and Richard Nixon's story. So it was, very, it was basically Richard Nixon's story. It was Watergate. Right. Um, and then I think after that, we created, we, the first big hit we created was called Ten Lost Years. Okay, that's remarkable. I did the, we did a musical of Ten Lost Years at Ryerson when I was there my last year in 94. Kathy it was Masadi. a musical, yeah. though. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a musical originally. It was right. a musical. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. The, um, uh, tell me about the, the process, because it was, uh, is it verbatim? I think it was verbatim theater, right? It was it, memoir. It was memoir, but it was based on a book by Barry... Yes, by Barry. I'll called, find out. Called Ten Lost Years about, yes, yes talking to people mm-hmm. about the Great Depression. Right. And we took the book, and we the way George worked um, was usually with a writer and with musicians and with the actors. Mm-hmm. The script might be partially finished or uh, not finished at all. And Cedric Smith and wrote the music, and... Uh, the, the actors were, all had to be musicians as well. Um, um, well, that's great. Now, was would you describe that process? Was it a collective experience, or was George Luscombe in charge? Like it was, it was he was a, in charge. Yeah, yeah. George was in charge, and he worked through his methods. Certainly, actors could contribute, and it was the work was always collective. For example, you couldn't. You all actors were always called. All musicians, actors. And designers were called. I remember once I was at home doing some drawing, uh, what I thought was drawing the components for that set or one of the others. And he asked the stage manager where I was, and she said I was at home drawing. And he said, her job is here. (laughs) You know, her job is, the job is in rehearsals. So it meant very long working hours because I'd be in rehearsal and then I would work after they'd gone home, I'd set up the stage. You know, we'd worked with a lot of different blocks and props to as part of the process. And then I'd work on the costumes, too, and try out. And So it was a very all-encompassing. But the, the wonderful thing about work, one of the wonderful things about working with George is that he came to a, uh, a production with no preconceived ideas. We worked. The, I, actually, for me, the biggest hit was something called "You Can't Get Here from There." It was about the Chilean, uh, the overthrow of Allende, and we worked with a group of Chilean performers and uh, actors, some of whom or their children and descendants are still here, who managed to come to Canada, and against all odds, and in a way, you know, we we repeat 
the story of migration and refugees again and again and again. And we close our eyes. And in this case, um, can, the Canadian government closed its eyes to the fact that the large, a lot, many large corporations were involved and had their hands dirtied in this overthrow of Allende. So it was, um, it was a big success for me because it was a very uh, abstract, very successful set. Um, unfortunately, the night before we opened, I had been painting it, all the black touch-ups that you do and gone home about 3 a.m. Anyway, I awoke in the morning to the news that the theater had burned down. Oh, my God. That's crazy. When, what year was this? I would say 74, maybe? Wow. 75? I'll, I'll try to find some newspaper mm-hmm. links to that. And so what did you do? Like, uh, Was this the theater on Alexander? Yes. It was. Mm-hmm. How, what was the state of the theater at the... The next morning, like it was like just it was, gone. It was a lo- most of it was gone, although it's a brick building, so the shell was there, and the set was. I, I mean, I did a lot of early experimentation with um, uh, plexiglass, oh, okay. even though it was extremely expensive at the time. Um, so they were suspended plexiglass sheets that pivoted, so they worked as mirror, they worked as as window, they worked the uh, and. They had melted and reformed, and some of them were still hanging from the grid, and some of them had crashed. It was a very eerie, uh, scary, eerie, beautiful sight. And it was never really 100% determined, but the... The thinking was that it was arson, and George kind of liked the idea that it might that it was arson in some ways because it gave a validation to the importance of the work, yeah. and the work was paramount for him. That's remarkable. And so, um, and again, this is a story I'm completely unfamiliar. With. What what happened next? Do they rebuild like the we insurance rebuild. and everything else? Mm-hmm. The theater was rebuilt. And the set was rebuilt, and the show opened. And mm-hmm. that's perseverance. Like a lot of people would stare at that and go, like, and just move on. Like for, I think I'm thinking of Theater Network in Edmonton. It's the same. It was the same kind of um, point where the uh, that just burned. That burned about what four or five years ago, I think. Um, and the community rallied, and they put. They housed the companies in other places, and they continued their work, and they rebuilt the theater, and uh, and they went on from there. So it's it's uh, it's something that certainly is familiar, mm-hmm. even though I've never heard this heard the story before. And they rebuilt on Alexander Street. They just oh yeah, on I mean the, the brick shell was still yeah. there, and um, it just had to be gutted on the inside. I think we, but we didn't do anything differently. It was basically reconstructed. Yeah. How long did that process take? Oh, I don't think very long. I think the next year we, we were in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you opened with that, that piece. Yeah, we opened with that. Yeah. Uh, and I think at that time, Toronto Workshop Productions was um, the oldest, biggest alternative theater. 
it was a different kind of work than past Marai was doing or factory uh, because it had a, for George Luscombe it had a um, a very personal history of John Littlewood's kind of theater which does mean in addition to being it wasn't really collective I think you could say past Marai might have been more collective it wasn't really. He was very much in charge. And the work always involved music, actors playing instruments, uh, singing, and very non one of the main things, non-naturalistic scenery. And I think in that way, it was somewhat different from other alternative theaters. I'm thinking of Factory or um, Past Marai that didn't have such an aversion to naturalism that George had. And I mean aversion. Which is, was very ingrained in me then. And, and, and coincided very well with my, at that time, aesthetic, but also as I developed it. Uh, and I think we'll cover this a bit later, but I, I want to make sure that we talk about your relationship to different materials. Like it sounds like that may be... Mm-hmm. I mean, it's something that in design... It's such a pervasive part of the process is like what you build things out of and not necessarily what they're what the result is, but the material itself kinda is a way of exploring yes. the themes and the ideas you're trying to express, right? That's probably my single strongest um, philosophical base. Okay, well we'll pick that up after we talk about um, more of your career. So this is the mid-70s. Uh, did you start working with other companies? Or were, as a resident <laughs> designer at Toronto Workshop, you were like, you were there all the time. I was there all the time. And I did get a raise. I was up to 140 a week. Um, however, it was very, it became quite difficult uh, to, to manage financially because um, my husband at the time was, uh, going through law school, or I was getting through law school. Anyway, and I, it also became very difficult with, with George Luscombe at certain times. So one day I decided, again, because a friend of mine recommended or told me about a, a position at the CBC. That's also a thing we've spoken about before, how it kind of carried a lot of people through. People would supplement their income where it was a real, I mean, it was an important employer, mm-hmm. especially for design in the city. What was your connection to CBC and what, uh, what they, like, what, how did you start there? What did you do? I made an appointment. I'd heard again from somebody that they were looking for a costume designer. But I, so I applied. The, the head of design, Edna Harvey, thought I was applying to be an assistant designer because I was still bit, quite young. Sure. But that wasn't in my head at all. Um, and there were a couple of allies who were uh, designers who kind of stood up for me. And I, Suzanne Mess was one of them, who knew my work from the theater, and who said, no, she's ready to be a designer. And so I got that job. And I started with the Tommy Hunter show. But then I was the... Um, I originated and was the creator of King of Kensington. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. So that was my first, <laughs> my first real gig. That's pretty remarkable. Tell me about that. Like how, um, 
How uh, did you, uh, like, how did you get that job? Was it just because you knew the people, the producers, or was it? No, it no, like, I was hired as a, as the, uh, as a, one of this big stable of designers. Yeah. There were a lot of costume designers. And you were just assigned, oh, okay. you know, and, and once you were assigned, then you would meet a producer and, and then, you know, if you were lucky, they would ask for you. And I, and I was one of the, the uh, designers who could go back and forth quite easily between drama mm. and dance mm. and what they call variety in those days right. and comedy. And King of Kensington was quite a new, was a whole new wave of comedy that Perry Rosemond was the producer. And so I got on that and that was great. Yeah. Uh, how many seasons... I just run? did the, I don't know how long it ran, but oh. I got off after the first oh, one okay. and a half. <laughs> it's always fun to create them, but you don't want to stay on them too long. Right, yes. I guess it becomes the same thing over and over again. You want Well, it's renew. sort of established, yeah. you know, and especially when you're talking about clothing that's basically quite real. Mm-hmm. And um, then I went on to another series a few years later, produced by Robert Sharon, uh, called Home Fires, which was a period piece about the Second World War. And that, uh, because it was a period piece, had a little more, you know, sustaining interest. Mm-hmm. And, and given your experience at uh, TDPP with, um, with the more abstract sets and design elements, how did you uh, imagine going to, to something like Home Fires, that was something that you were probably more trained, like that was the basis of your training, like period and research and fidelity like our yeah and, but i wasn't doing set design i was strictly right. doing costume Just design yeah. yeah at that time they were at the cbc they were completely separated oh, really? there was no overlap okay. um was it a gendered <laughs> shop yes. as well yeah. pretty close it yeah. was a lot of uh, women uh, costume designers although not all of them um the really the one who was my mentor, who was really a great designer, horse dance, was a man, and there were almost no women set designers. Um, towards the end of the time when I was there, they were trying. They were asking me if if I would do both. They were looking to kind of integrate a little bit more in, in the sense of uh, being called a production designer or an art director rather than a set designer and a costume designer. Uh, were these uh, union positions? Yes. It was, mm-hmm. it was it NABET or was it a different... No, it, because it's a um, public broadcaster. I think it was QP or oh. one of those. Right, okay. But I wouldn't swear to it. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> um, how about some memories on uh, about King of Kensington or other time working at the CBC? Was there anything specific that you remember about those times that was... It was wonderful to have, to be earning um, real money. Yeah. It was unfortunately and very sadly um, the great bursting force of AIDS. And I lost a lot of people that I worked with, a lot of colleagues, um, and that made it very sad. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, the, uh, there's a, we lost the entire generation mm-hmm. of people during that period of time. I just spoke about this down in Nashville. One of my research interests is in LGBTQ health. Um, and uh, I, this is a kind of a 
it's always there, the presence of HIV and AIDS, and, and no less so in the arts. Um, so how long were you at the CB, CBC for? When did that kind of time end? Or was it a long time? It was stretched out for a while. Um, but I always maintained my theater career when I could. Like, they did allow me to, you know, when I was between shows or I could turn down shows, I kept my foot in the theater. In fact, um, and then it was really only after the big... Let me think now. After the big layoffs, you know, the layoffs started happening in the CBC in the 80s. And I started, it was around the time when I wanted to have a family. And so in 81, I left for mater on maternity leave for a year. And when I went back, I went back, I think, to the Home Fire series for another year or two. Then I, I was pregnant again. And at that point, I after 84 I didn't I decided not to go back but the main reason I decided not to go back was that I had been offered Expo 86 in Vancouver at that time um, and that was starting in 1984 which was challenging because I had two kids by then so that's another story okay <laughs> Uh, Expo 86, I remember that uh, as a child of the 80s, that was a big, it was a big deal in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, now, what was your position there? Were you uh, the art director or like what were you doing? I was doing the interior of the Ontario Pavilion, oh. which was built by Eb Seidler. And um, it, it was considered to be an exhibition space. It was huge. I think it was, I can't remember, 50,000 square feet. And it was the, the, the program mandate was a walk through Ontario's history, a theatrical walk through with no words, all just done through visual theatrical sets. Interesting. Uh, was... Um what was the experience like then, like as as far as the audience goes? Um, how were you interacting with the environment, or was it just all like? Just there were all big visual? lineups. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> no, it was all very three dimensional, very wow, theatrical. Okay. It it's it started with a kind of walk through a cave, uh, ancient caves with pet petroglyphs, and. Um, a walk through Niagara Falls through real mist and floor was shaking and we had huge film. You know, we were exploring a lot of what was then very new technology. And then a lot of things with scrim, a lot of things with lighting. Um, I hired Ken Gass to help me write a script, even though there weren't any words. And I asked Sholem Dolgoy if he would do the lighting. And it took two years. We built it here in a big hangar out in Etobicoke. And then it was all pulled apart and taken to Vancouver. It was a lot of special effects. It had a lot of mirror. It had a lot of infinity effects. I was always very interested in illusion like that. And the infinity effects, in fact, were, you know, you know what a tri triangular mirrored infinity effect is. 
And they were so, the illusion was so good that when I walked the premier, who was um, David Peterson at that point, through it, he, he walked right into it and got a big oh. egg on his head. Oh, no. <laughs> success. That's, like, that's a successful illusion. The longer the lineups, the bigger the success. And yeah. it was one of the billions that had long lineups. So that was great. That's remarkable. Uh, that's fantastic. Now you had been doing theater this, this entire this to their experience in CBC. Well, um, the during Expo, were you only doing uh, Expo, or were you doing other work at the time? Like, was it something that was so that took up a lot of your time? Or it took a lot of my time the last year for sure. But in '81, I had also, <coughs> sorry, I had been invited to Stratford for the first time. Oh, right. Much too, and I think I must have still been working with George because I think he had, he was quite angry with me and thought that I was this going to Stratford to do a musical, the first musical Stratford ever did, which was an HMS Pinafore that Leon Major directed. I think George thought that was me really selling out. Um, but it was a kind of for most designers, I think a kind of natural growth, you know, you're working in smaller theaters and then you're waiting for the call from, I had already been at Shaw, um, I'd worked with uh, one of the Romanian directors at Shaw and um, done something quite notorious or what people thought was notorious and again, probably around the idea of non-naturalistic and kind of more bareness and kind of, and uh, showing theater for what it is and and those were pretty new concepts at that point especially in a theater like Shaw where everything was built on the illusion of naturalistic and real scenery sorry what was the show you can't say something that was notorious without me taking the cherry into that. the cherry orchard Oh, great. It was a Penchalasco, and it involved the entire thing coming down at the end oh, and wow. tearing, and everyone thought it was a big mistake, but it was intentional. Right. <laughs> yeah, isn't that funny how the, the minute you break naturalism, people think it wasn't meant, mm-hmm. it doesn't have purpose, or something has gone wrong. That's remarkable that people, like now we would think, uh, like, I, like now that kind of vocabulary I think is in all the audience that like you would expect Mm-hmm. kind of reality to shift or to, you know, twist during the show. But it is remarkable to think that uh, the vocabulary was different even that recently. 1979, yeah. that was. That's a long time ago. It is a long time ago. In the in the span of things you think, like when I think of the 1970s, I think of this non-naturalistic mm-hmm. and uh, an expressionistic kind of approach to theater. But uh, to think that the audiences. Especially, I guess, the Shaw, it's a mainstream exactly. audience. They weren't mm-hmm. ready for it, right? Or they weren't. It was a new vocabulary to them. What was the, what was the look? Like, describe, I'm really interested to, 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 to hear what it looked like, like up until that point that it came down. And can you describe what happened at the end of it? It was um, pretty well a bare stage with a platform on it that moved. And then a lot of hanging pieces, hanging old lace pieces, hanging balloons, a white balloon. It was all white, um, kind of chandeliers that also, everything kind of came down. 
and a big psych across the back. And it was the, the wraparound psych that came down at the end and exposed the, the brick of the, the bear theater. That's remarkable. I can see how that would be shocking for people who haven't. And very noisy. It made a big noise. And very noisy. Did you have to supplement the noise, or was it just like the mechanics of it coming down that was enough? I don't remember yeah, that. It's okay. Mm -hmm. um, and then tell me about the first about HMS Pinafore at Stratford. So, for, uh, like, how did you react to George's kind of response to this? What he thought maybe was a betrayal. I think I knew that with him. I knew him well enough that that wouldn't last. That he would. He still loved me no matter what I did. That it was kind of an outburst. Um, and I think he did understand. And I did go back occasionally to TWP to do a few things afterwards. Um, and it was during John Hirsch's tenure. And Leon Major was the director. Uh, Murray Lawfer was the set designer. And Murray was also somebody who really promoted me and, and mentored me. Um, and so that's how I got the gig, even though it wasn't really, I wouldn't say it was my kind of thing to do that real, realistic period. What Leon said was, I want it to be all pink, pink, pink. I remember that. That's great. And it was Michael Burgess. All right, of course, yeah. Anyway, sure. it was... It was um, being allowed, also I was highly pregnant. It was an August opener and I was due in August. And it was a good place to be working at that point because people took care. Uh, you weren't overworked in that sense. You know, you had fittings were carefully scheduled and people treated me really well, but I'm convinced that's why my son hates Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> I think there might be other reasons to dislike Gilbert and Sullivan. I, uh, I'm indifferent, but I can understand that. Um, now, before we started as well, you, um, you had uh, discussed uh, this experience of sort of reconciling being a mother mm. and being a working theater professional. And, and, and as you just said, that Stratford was... Um, was allowing, allowed you to do that. This is your second child or your first child? This is my first child. Your first child. And nobody at Stratford was having children. Right. And there were very few, there were very few women set designers anyway, but none of them were, were having children. And even actors, it just didn't seem something that people were doing. And um, I, I, I got a wonderful gig with the Royal Winnipeg Ballet before, so that must have been in 1980, before I had my son, and with a Chilean choreographer called Vicente Nebrada. And it was a full length, all effects, flying by Foy, starring Evelyn Hart, who was just up and coming, Firebird. Now that was a gig that was right up my alley, doing sets and costumes. And so we had, they, we had been promised that all the meetings would be in Toronto. So they were during the year, and, and I think I was pregnant. Um, 
No, the meetings, I think, were already happening with it in 81. Anyway, there was a time when my son was about five months old that I had to go to Winnipeg for technical meetings. And he was quite squirmy at five months, but still uh, too young to be weaned. And being my first child, I was very conscious of all that and conscientious. So I decided that the only way would be to commute to Winnipeg. So every morning, and the, you can imagine in those days, security at the airport was easy, right? Just drive out there, you don't have any bags, you just get on the plane, you gain an hour flying to Winnipeg. So you're ready for meetings probably around 10 or so, and you have meetings, you leave at 3 or 4, you get back to Toronto and get back to your child by about 8 o'clock. That is crazy. And then I did that yeah. again every morning. Every morning. How long did you sustain that for? For a week. For a week. Then I had spent my entire fee. Right. <laughs> right. There's the fee. They weren't like going to cover that. You were going to. No. And they had... thought it was very funny. Arnold Spohr was, I guess, the artistic <coughs> director at the RWB in those days. And for years, he sent me flowers on Mother's Day because he thought it was so funny. So that was only during that technical period. Now, part of that was because of the pressure I felt from the male technical um, I guess they were in charge having a child at that point was your problem and you had to sort it out you had, and it didn't make sense for me to try and bring someone for that period this seemed to make the most sense for the, for the happiness of the child then in the following year uh, season, we were actually doing the work out there. I brought him with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and did you you had to deal with your own kind of daycare out there, or did you just bring? I him brought everywhere? someone with me. Yeah, I brought him with me, but I br- I brought a, actually a friend to be the the sitter, and uh, and uh, that was my the first child. The second time I got pregnant. Um, I was at the CBC, and it was, again, it was a little bit easier. Um, but it is never, it has never been easy to be a woman working in the theater, especially, I would say, in the technical set end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it. It sounds a bit sexist, but I think it was harder working in set design, working only with male TDs, with carpenters. I also worked in the States, and I was working in Philadelphia at the opera. I did a Rosalka um, with Ben Hepner. It must have been in the 80s, later 80s. And um, I can remember the management just saying, it's your problem, you know. You, we don't, we don't, we're not concerned with whether you have children, in terms of timing. So in all the seasons I worked at Stratford, which was about 13, spread out over many years, I have to say they were very good, and I managed to, most of the time, get around the residency, or or not get around it as much as uh, find some flexibility in the residency clauses. I could either bring my children and hire someone and they would and get a big enough house at my own expense, um, or I could come back and forth a lot more. 
then, but it was, it was, uh, it was a struggle. I can remember having to go up just for a couple of fittings a day and then driving home and driving up and driving home. Um, and I think that has definitely changed. Yeah. I do recall um, when I was still working in theater, a couple designer friends, lighting designers, who uh, either were pregnant or um, had small children. And I remember, I mean... I mean, part of this is about having no security, right? Especially if your whole family works in theater. You have to, like, there's no, you can't take off work early when mm-hmm. you're a contractor because you're not an employee. There's, like, no maternity there to cover you. So you're working, I, like, I knew people who are climbing ladders at month eight, mm-hmm. you know, to do, I mean, not every day, but certainly they would make those choices because they were, like, most people would be at home or at least taking, like, at least not doing the physical labor or having the actual opportunity to be accommodated at work but that was not like you're you're kind of stuck as a contractor like on your own making those choices that are certainly not very conducive to actually living life as a parent right and and then having the um having to make the choices of of where you're going to paint what what were you going to what toxic things were you going to put in yourself, you know? And and uh, how much can you say, well, I won't do this. I can't do this. And then are you going to get rehired, you know? Absolutely. Uh, okay, so uh, tell me about your opera experience. What, what was your first... Like, was HMS Pinafore your first musical you worked on? I mean, you've done... Yes, yeah. I'd, I... I think so. I mean, probably I'd, I'd done musical theater, you know, but I think probably the first what you'd call a real operetta or whatever. And um, the first time I was hired was by Latvi Mansuri at the COC to do uh, a Tales of Hoffman with a Dutch director who I still see now. Hans Nuvenhaus, and we, I, did I only do the set? I think I only did the set, and it was at the newly built center on Front Street. Oh, like the Joey and Toby Yeah, I, I don't know if it was called that, or it was called else. the Texaco Opera Center. Right, that's right, yeah. Yeah, and... I think the idea was that I was supposed to do the set and they, oh no, I was supposed to do both. This was actually quite a good story. They were still connected with Malabars. And I, and I designed the co- set and costumes. And the costumes were so way out from their point of view that they didn't want to build them because Malabars would not be able to rent them to anyone else. They only wanted a set, a new set of costumes if they could be useful to send across North America to other productions. And so they determined that, I mean, what they said was they were just too expensive because they couldn't amortize that cost over 10 gigs, only having it happen only once. And I was so heartbroken and so disappointed because this doesn't happen in Europe, my Dutch director friend kept saying. 
This wouldn't happen, you know, that they wouldn't, they would want you to build exotic looking costumes or whatever. Anyway, so we ended up using kind of stock costumes from a, a German designer production. Anyway, it was, it was a kind of a mixed experience because of that, but I enjoyed doing the set. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting economic thing I had not considered before in opera because as lighting, I mean, you just, I mean, either you can rent stuff or you can use the gear in the house, but there's not really this idea that, no, this has to have a life past this show. Like, like the fact that you're building a set, you're designing a set or a costume design that, that has to be used elsewhere. That's a strange economy mm-hmm. that I had not considered before. I guess that's, that also speaks to the kind of support, maybe the lack of support that we have governmentally or mm-hmm. philanthropically where you don't, you can't support those choices. You have to actually build in this long-term life into the set or the costumes. And I think all of that has changed at the COC too. I mean, things have changed, but that's how it was in, at that time. One thing that I am kind of impressed by is that uh, the COC, I think Susan Hess, Hess Mess, Susan Mess, mm-hmm. Susan was Mess. a designer, Suzanne Mess, was, mm-hmm. a, was a designer for the COC in the early 70s, late 60s. I remember seeing things she yeah. was mentioned. Um, uh, it is, uh, even though they're bringing in directors from, um, bring international directors into direct things, they're still hiring people, Canadians, to actually design original productions. Uh, even Not back now then, anymore. Not now. Mm-hmm. It's a fun, kind of funny how it's mm-hmm. kind of changed, right? Um, unless it's an original work. I just saw Hadrian two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's an odd, that's an odd change in the past 40 years that they've undergone um so opera uh and when was your first international gig when did you start working out of the country i guess it's connected to the directors you were working with here right um i guess the first one might have been the opera company in philadelphia i was um i had done uh, a gig with robert de rosier for the olympics i must have been the 88 olympics i think it was calgary a dance piece, and he was really fun to work with. It was quite crazy, incognito it was called. And because they were the Olympic, um, you know, so, so international, Anna Kisselgott from the New York Times, who was the dance critic, came up and reviewed it and gave me a really great review in the New York Times. And based on that, the artistic director of the Opera Company Philadelphia read that review and cold called me. So even though that wasn't my first, my, the very first time I was still working at TWP and the theater had a call from the public in New York, from Joe Papp and from his wife who was kind of running it, asking me if I would come down. Um, And I went down to see them, and he invited me to become, to to join his, what he called the stable of designers. And I thought hard about it, but my husband was a young Canadian lawyer. There was no hope of work, and I didn't really want to work outside of Canada. I already had a pretty um, determined streak that the Canadian theater needed to be 
supported. We needed to work really hard on Canadian plays and on Canadian productions. So I turned it down. Um, but then I went down to do this op opera, Rizalka, with a French director, actually, or an American who lived in France, and Ben Hepner. And that was an interesting experience because it was all built, and as it often is, before the star comes in the last few days. And when, Bill, uh, when Ben arrived on the set, he looked at it and he said, oh, I can't work on that. That must have been, your heart must have dropped at that point. <laughs> and I, that's remarkable. How did you respond? And about 200 people all turned around and looked at me, oh, right? Yeah. Everybody, the chorus, the stage management, everybody. And it had to do with the difficulty of him not seeing black on black. And this was a very um, shiny, curved, uh, spiraling platform that was so it was both on a rake, it was shiny black, it didn't have any railings or anything, it was quite big. Um, so all told, he, he didn't think he could do it. But we worked in the, in the work lights, and I kind of took his hand and we practiced during the rehearsals. Uh, and eventually he felt confident enough. I don't know if we ever got the lighting as dim or as much in his eye. You know, there was some compromises in the lighting, but he was willing to do it, and in fact, he managed quite well, even though I was a nervous wreck opening night. And in that same production, I'd, been wor I'd worked with an older diva um, who, who was playing Jezebel, or the witch, and um, I had to go to New York and show her the costume drawings, and she approved them all. Anyway, she didn't like her headdress because it had all these horns on it. And she took it off in the dressing room and threw it at me and said, darling, it's just too much hat. <laughs> and again, it was like two days before because she only just arrived. And... Um, so I, I put it on her head and I said, okay, well, let's just... I, I did learn some good bedside manner for, from a lot of these experiences. And I have a pretty good temperament. Like, I'm, I, it's never occurred to me to just talk out or anything. Uh, I said, let's try it. Maybe I can remove some of the horns. I remember it had seven horns on it. But the dressing room door was open and people were going by, including Ben. And the uh, singers would stop and say, oh, that's so fantastic. You look so great in that. And so within about 10 minutes, she had thought it was okay. It does kind of speak to your ability as a communicator to bring people who, I mean, really have a lot of power in their roles in these companies on board to your mm -hmm. kind of philosophy and idea and choices. Not always. I mean, it doesn't always yeah. work. You do lose some, but... Sure. But uh, I don't know what I would do in that situation. Like, <laughs> I would think about what kind of compromise. Like, Ben Hepner doesn't like my work. How can I make those choices? But uh, you took his hand and, and walked him through. That's remarkable. 
Hi there. Yeah, I know this interview is going really well, but before you skip ahead, just shuffle over to the show notes if you could and click on the link to the Patreon page for the title block. It does cost money to produce this time capsule of theater design history, and for a couple of bucks an episode, you can ensure that I can continue to put out great interviews with designers like Astra Jansen. Go to patreon.com slash the title block podcast and donate now. Thank you for your help. Let's pick up then uh, about that question of materials and about mm-hmm. design. Um, uh, I remember, and we spoke about this a bit earlier, working on Assassins back in 90, whatever it was, 97 maybe, 96, uh, at Berkeley Street Theatre, and you had um, done a lot of work with expanded metal kind of mesh. And this actually makes much more sense to me now, knowing about your roots in sculpture as a studio practice, you know, in your early career. Um, and and about the work now, we talked about the plexi, early work in plexiglass and things like that. How do you, um, how do you see materials informing your work? And uh, maybe... Um, give me an idea of your approach to design given your reliance on that sculptural kind of model. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, I think materials can be the inspiration. They can guide you in a way, uh, or you can be looking for a material. But for me, the material and the end product are very closely related and that I often I don't believe in disguising the material now that there's a good example in that um, when I was teaching I used to tell the students about uh, what I call the fake rock syndrome you know where you you take styrofoam and you turn it into rocks and you paint it or you mache it and and you end up with rocks. And I remember a production of Dancing at Luna saw. Um, and I said, I don't, I don't do that. The director wanted rocks, but I don't do that. We either use real rocks. Well, at the Grand Theater, we just put cave floor in with the real rocks. Or we use real styrofoam. You know, and we say... This is styrofoam. This is a styrofoam that is a metaphor for rock. So the material, I think, is more interesting for an audience if they don't have what I call the double, the double fakery thing. Like, I'm looking at something, I already know that the theater is fake in a way it's make-believe um then they're stubbing their toe and and kicking styrofoam so then i have to believe again that this is supposed to be something else and and i like to take the audience out of that so for example when years ago my very first or my second show ever at the tarragon uh with bill glasgow was the master builder and I knew that the metaphor was a glass house, a house made of glass. So what I, what I found, donated, of course, in those days, was lasagna containers that were um, kind of an early vacuform format. This would have been about 1983 or four, something a long time ago. 
And they donated all these lasagna containers. And even though they were, the, I could look at them and I would know that's what they were, we taped them onto plexi sheets uh, to be walls. And they had, you know, they had the shape of real bricks, not of glass brick. They're, they're, the double aesthetic value is this gives me a feeling of a glass house. Like I can sort of see through it. But it also gives me a sense that I know these are lasagna containers. And often that's taught, for me, that's tied in with recycled goods. I very strongly believed in, and I still do, and the last show I did, Harlem Duet at the Tarragon, was made of recycled. I still believe very firmly that we have to, as much as possible, use recycled material. And we can enjoy what that is. So I went through phases of using a lot of um, plexi, knowing that that plexi was, except when it got burned, um, that it was always reusable. I mean, it was one of those materials you never throw out the back. Um, And I done a lot of things with paper. There was a kind of paper toweling which I re-dyed and repurposed and reused in three different productions, the same batch, because it was so lovely and so tactile and evocative, you know? Yeah. Is that... um, Is there a philosophy behind that? Like, uh, I'm not a great theater history scholar, even though this just shows about theater <laughs> history, uh, like that kind of Brechtian idea of taking, of making sure you don't get sucked into the emotional artifice of the show. Is that where this comes from? Or is it, uh, is it just something you're just not impressed by? Like, we all know the rock is styrofoam. Like, no one can make a rock that looks like a rock, you know, without going, I wonder how they built that, because it can't possibly be what it's representing. Like, big, giant iron doors. Well, we know they're not big iron doors, because... I would never stand up for the engineering <laughs> and everything else. Um, is that what kind of you find unconvincing? Um, or is there a larger philosophy behind it? Like in, in the way we tell stories in theater and, and our relationship to it? I think it's, it's a bit of both. Um, I, I don't like the unconvincing. Mm. I don't ha- like to have to work at it like that if I'm in the audience. But it's also that the theater does not represent reality. And if I do want reality, then I better have reality. Like I better have real soup and I'm eating it from a real pot. And that's fine. I I don't object to that at all. It's the... And I don't object to an empty bowl and miming the eating of the soup too you know there are there are, there are so many different ways of doing any um, any action but I'm very drawn to materials that are beautiful on their own whether it's metal like I've used so many different kinds of metal different kinds of meshes whether it's an opera um, different kinds of uh, I guess materials that transform and that's where lighting is such a big factor like I love things that are not changed because we're moving them off stage and bringing something else on we're changing 
it in front of your eyes. And I had two really good shows that I that I worked that that out. And one of them was Molly Sweeney at Canadian Stage with Miles Potter, where I was trying to see if a particular set could change throughout the evening radically and change its form completely that the audience might not even be aware of it. And that's so that's what we did. And and then one that I did at the Grand with Martha Henry called Woman in Mind. There was a, a kind of a garden around the set, um, not trying to be a real garden, like made out of velvet and crazy fa- old fabrics, that grew throughout the production and was about 14 feet tall by the end. And then I would ask people, did you notice that about it? <laughs> and it was quite interesting because some people didn't even know. Right. And, and was that a success, or did you want people to notice? Um, or both? Uh, or both. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and there are sometimes we, I just like to set up these challenges for myself. Once um, on a production of Sweet Bird of Youth at Stratford, um, Martha Henry appears, it was at the Patterson, under this bedspread, and the whole first scene is her getting up out of the bed, winding this bedspread around her because she was naked. And at one point I thought, you know, we're never going to do this. It's impossible. It's a huge piece of fabric. Um, we called it Bernice, actually, the bedspread. It had it took on a life of its own. But Martha was a bit, is an extremely determined uh, actor and just worked at it until it, it it happened and so sometimes we do things that are a challenge for the actor if if they're in tune with it you know that then enhances the kind of riskiness of their performance and some actors would really enjoy that and some actors would would be really um, turned off by that idea, that there's some risk in what I'm doing with the set, mm-hmm. which is also the costume in this case. Yeah, because there's enough risk just standing it, on stage and yeah. saying these lines and being <laughs> truthful about them, rather than, am I going to fall down or be wrapped up in this thing or have mm-hmm. a mediator between me and the audience I have to navigate on top of everything else? So that says a lot about the actors sort of committing to that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, That's remarkable. Um, any, uh, what about other challenges? C- can you think of other like, examples of these kind of, um, uh, you know, challenges that you've built around materials with, with working with actors or? Uh, um, well, I was, I the last opera actually that I worked on for the COC, which is was in the new, in the, this new building, um, was with a Russian director, Dima Bertman. And I had worked on a few smaller things with him, and then this was a big production called um, From the House of the Dead. And I really wanted it to be under, look like the people, the, uh, it's about memoirs of uh, prisoners, prisoners of war. And I really wanted them to 
looked like they were in a giant cage that was half submerged in the stage. So we opened all the traps and the whole uh, stage, and we built this metal structure that um, people could, these prisoners would be in, partly in and partly above, and their heads would be just under the bottom of the mesh. And there was a lot of experimenting with the right kind of metal for that, strong enough to support all the action and scenery on top, open enough so that you could see them and they could sing underneath. Um, And I also wanted to have a shower scene because showers were incredibly important in Dostoevsky's memoirs because they happened only once a year and they established the hierarchy of the prisoners. Like the lowliest ones were at the bottom and got the dirtiest runoff of the water and the more powerful prisoners were at the top. And I really wanted that. So it meant also, in a way, bending the rules about nudity in opera on the stage. Um, and Richard Bradshaw at the time um, s- said, well, we could have nudity, but we would have to hire that cast separately. So we did. You, you can't ask a singer to be nude. And we did that, and it was it looked great. Yeah, uh, there was nudity in Hadrian, but that was part of. I imagine that was part of the casting. Like you would know. Yeah, they weren't really nude. They weren't no, really they, nude. No. no. Yeah, no. I guess the chorus was nude, but the oh, they actually no, no they were they. That's right. They were there. This they is all uh, wear, my, yeah. they all wear g, uh, g strings. Yeah. Or some I, kind of. I think they had originally attempted nudity, but it was something happened. This is kind of insider information. I spoke to one mm. of the designers about it. They had this attempted it. The, this is off. The, yeah, like it's yeah, and they the had record. sort of, and they didn't, they didn't end up. They changed it because mm-hmm. it was not practical. There's something distracting about it, which didn't be distracting. Um, okay, that's interesting. Now, um, getting back to your materials, your materials. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you? Uh, just talk about your approach. Uh, some people do a lot of research. Some people start with uh, sort of starting with their emotional response to the work uh, and and drawing. Do you start from the model, or do you start from rendering, or does it depend on the on the piece? And how do you find your way inside the? I try to read it uh, as much as I like a bunch of times. The first time I just read it through, then I cross at all the stage directions. So there's nothing I have no idea anymore, but what it's supposed to look like, and read it just for the dialogue. Um, I think whenever you're stuck creatively, you have to go back to the text. And then I I think I visualize it pretty well in three dimensions, and I work first in a model. I think the we tend to cheat when we're, when we're doing it in two dimensions, so I really need that space. I also like to change, or not necessarily change, but explore the relationship with the audience and the actor. That's where I usually begin. Like, do I like the audience sitting here and the actors being here? Or do I want to change that? And this show I did at the Tarragon Harlem Duet was the first time I've ever used the Tarragon in a proscenium formation. No, I haven't worked there that much, but say eight or ten shows or something. 
So that's where I begin. Where is the audience in relation to the actor? And how, am I going to change that? Am I going to accept that? Um, if so, if I'm going to change it, then how? It seems like, uh, like if you're working in a traditional proscenium house, that's very difficult to work with. It seems like that practice is very rooted in your, in your, from the beginning of your career when you're working in alternative theater or working mm -hmm. in a theater that's not that's non-traditional, right? Breaking naturalism down and now breaking the space down. Uh, so that's something it seems like has been, always been there, right, for you. Um, did you? Did you explore that at UBC? Was it something that uh, that started there, or was it Luscombe and, and TWP that sort of started that, or was it just the time that you were? I think working? it was during TWP, although it was um, a, a basically a kind of slightly thrusted proscenium. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think I think that's where it started because I, we did a big show called Les Canadiens, mm -hmm. and there I just changed that whole theater around and I put audience in other places and I put puppets where the audience was and changed it around and I and I really enjoyed that and I've done that mm, many many times most of the time that's interesting so the so the actual like was it raked seating at uh, TWP at the time or was it was like, raked mm -hmm. and so you had People or puppets in the in the regular theater seats, and you had the where was the audience? Were they on stage? They or? were all around. It was a big. We turned it into a big oval, oh. and a kind of um, skateboarding, mm -hmm. skate roller skating kind of. It was pre. Um, well, it was bef we made an, a kind of an ice rink, mm -hmm. but you know, not real. That's awesome. Um, okay, and so now you've read through the script a uh, several times and, and become inspired. How do you build a relationship with the director? Let's say it's a new director that you're, that you're working with. How do you find that language and that vocabulary and, and generate ideas with them? Is there a... I always ask the director to tell me, just in a sentence or so, what the play is about. And I remember the first time I worked with Martha Henry. We were working on a show called The Grace of Mary Travers. And um, I said to her, tell me what, t just tell me what it's about in a few sentences. And she thought about it and she started to make these beautiful noises that only Martha Henry can make with her mouth. Deep sounds, there was no words, just a kind of musical um, configuration of sounds that went on for seemed like a you know, whole minute. And then she stopped. And I remember saying, yeah, I think I know what you mean. <laughs> so the, the director's ability to um, condense what they think it's about is a good, is a good starting point. Right. And how do you feel about... Um, the, the kind of imposition of your own taste on the piece. Are, do you, are there things that you do over and over again because you feel like this is a good way of telling a story? Or, and which is perfectly, I mean, these are 
I'm not trying to build a hierarchy of like what's good and what's bad, but some people like are, are hired to be auteurs, uh, and because they do a specific type of work that speaks to this type of script, or do you approach it with kind of the blank slate um, and try to develop like the best idea for that production in that space and time? I'd like to say that I try to approach it like a blank state, <laughs> slate. Um, I'm not sure that I always do. I do bring a certain, um, I don't know if it's taste is the right word. There are directors who would, who would never hire me. Right. And we've always known that. Okay. You know, they've always known it. Right. I've always known it. I, I don't work with directors, A, who have a complete idea already. That's why I never worked with Robin Phillips, who have a sense of what they want it to be and who would like you to be more of a technician to figure it out. Uh, I prefer to work with directors who, are, who don't have a concept. Let's call it a concept. Um, because I'd like to bring it. That doesn't mean that the director would necessarily agree with that concept I'm bringing, you know, and it might be going back and forth. But I'd like to be the one who initiates a visual idea. And then directors gravitate, to, you know, different designers and different directors gravitate towards each other. And how do you, um, you talked about how you, you think about the audience relationship to the actor. How do you uh, incorporate the actor's relationship to the set and your design or your costume, for example, into that work? Like, how do you, uh, it sounds like you you have worked in certain cases, we talked about Martha Henry, in kind of, or in even your hand-holding of Ben Hepner in, you know, in Philadelphia. How do you bring them on board? How do you think about how they interact with the set when you're, Designing, like, what place do they have in that design for you? I think the essential thing is that I always have to remember that it's the actor up there, not me. That if you keep that foremost in your mind, I I try not to have a confrontation with an actor I, or force my will on them. I try to remember, you know, I'm wearing, I'm making, I'm asking them to wear this. And if I'm making them wear it, it it's going to affect the performance. Mm-hmm. And they're up there. I think that, that's the paramount thing is the director's not even up there, but the actor is. I think it's a great segue because I want to talk about your work with Video Cab. Mm-hmm. And the village of small huts and Michael Hollingsworth work. Um, just let me just, just to make sure I get I've got your I'm an idea of your work with Video Cab correct. The my understanding, uh, have you worked with them on productions that have not been part of the Michael Hollingsworth series? And was yeah. was the design? Let's just talk about the the village of small huts first of all. Okay, because I, I I've spoken with Jim. Um, uh, Plaxton. Jim Plaxton, <laughs> about his sort of development of the black box and how he lit it and everything else. Uh, but he, I don't think he was the originator of that. I think that that had, he, oh, I can't remember now, if he inherited that from somebody else and then figured out a way to light it. What was your, how did you get involved with uh, Hollingsworth and Video Cab? Because there's a very specific aesthetic that's, mm-hmm. that's attached to that. Um, 
I wasn't the first designer. Uh, the very the very early shows were. I'm not even sure who they all were. There were, but there was a, a group called Shadowland, um, and they were. I think the the black box came first. The kind of spotlighting. Those early shows were only from the neck up, mm-hmm. mostly, and involved the white face mm-hmm. and the kind of outrageous um, wigs and a, a p- partial costume and then more of a costume. And so I started... I'm not even sure that the village was the first ones I started, or whether... I think I worked earlier with Deanne on some of her shows. Mm-hmm. Completely different style. This is uh, Deanne Taylor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they were a, a different style altogether. Mm-hmm. Much more more realistic. Mostly they were almost like fun costumes, I'd say. Um, like comedy, but mm-hmm. closer to sketch comedy or, you know... Right. <clears throat> Not outrageously designed. More like, often, more like caricature rather than. Yeah, like, and yeah. I often had to find, I often, they were found things, um, secondhand things, and we didn't make a lot. And then um, I think the first, I'm not even sure which was the first history, Laurier maybe, mm-hmm. but uh, Michael had been working on. A few of them. He'd asked me a couple of times earlier. Um, there were issues of availability. There were um, anyway. I I started, and then I kind of stayed with them. Not all the time. There was a, a time when um, Mulroney. I didn't do. There were a few that I didn't do that other designers did, but the. The concept had been set. I mean, we knew it was whiteface. We knew they were big costumes. We, I think over the years, to some extent, they became more subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, they also became more durable because we would remount or have a longer run. Um, there was a lot less kind of glue gunning. The early ones, I remember, we were, we did a lot of glue gunning to hold them together, and then gradually we did more sewing, and we had more money for for staff. They became more, I don't want to say sophisticated, because that's the wrong word. They were brilliant at the beginning already, mm-hmm. you know, before I was even there. Um, they Different, I guess, somewhat different. It strikes me that if you're starting out with um, only really like head and upper torso, as you get more of that exposed, you can tell more of a story. Like you have, if you've got this, if you've got like from your neck to above your head to tell a story in, you have to really be specific mm-hmm. with the story you're telling. Whereas if you have more of a body to show, then you can you can spread that out more and be let less. Overt or it's harder to light. You know the right. principles. The principles of that acting were and still are front forward primarily. Um, you know for the lighting as well. Uh, non um, 
I guess not naturalistic in terms of the relationships of people on stage. Two people, two characters speaking to each other might both face forward. So in that way, in the last 10 years, it's also evolved and changed a little bit. There's more interaction between the characters. There's more physical staging of battles. That didn't happen in the early years at all, which meant from a costume point of view, the whole body had to be costumed eventually. And then front and back. Used to, when I first did them, it was only the front and only the waist up. And then we gradually would see from the waist down. And then we'd even see the side and maybe the back. So it was an evolution of sorts. Um, and that's kind of where Confederation, which was the last, uh, the last ones we did, where they kind of sit. Right. Is there a reason for that? Was that, is that something that the, like did the script changed to the, just the style of storytelling? Or was it a, like a, a grasping for something new or a new way of telling the story? That was I think it was either? more in in a kind of direction sense. It really um, was the directors who who adapted and changed and fill what what they would consider filled out the material or or were trying to make more variation in it or i'm I'm not sure it's really a, a directing question but I adapted and then I invited other uh, younger designers to join me and to co-design and hopefully they will take it over Mm -hmm. that's an excellent um, segue actually into kind of training too Um, you did you you didn't really assist anybody when you were out of the gate you were a designer right from the beginning right you weren't kind of taking on someone else's kind of process you were developing your own, right? I just developed my own. I just got thrown in there. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also understand, too, from, Jim's, from Jim and I, when we spoke, there was a lot more opportunity to have those experiences, I think, in the 1970s. There was maybe more money fooling around, but there was also less pressure, maybe less economic pressure, although we certainly spoke about how that, that pressure eventually came. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, when did you first, uh, like, when did you start mentoring people? Um, and how do you approach that kind of mentorship position? That's a question. I think I, I began in earnest when I started teaching at U of T. And I was there for 14 years and teaching design in the, what was then the undergraduate drama department. And I really enjoyed teaching, I have to say. I had done some guest lecturing in various places, and I was the um, woman scholar for a week. I think they had them for a week at Queen's. And so I had, I, uh, so I had some experience, but it was really when I started there that I worked out a kind of pedagogical mm. process. Uh, let's talk about that, because how do you, like, when you were trying to translate your process and your understanding of the philosophy of theater and how design works, um, what kind of translations did you have to make between doing it and actually teaching somebody about it? Like, was that a intuitive process, or what, did you struggle with it, or how did you sort through it? Was it was partly 
intuitive and partly kind of reasonable and logical, but I, I tried to get the students to unlearn and forget kind of what they thought theater design should be. I'm not sure if this was in the context of our original discussion, but I remember you talking about how you had to unlearn a lot of things during your mm-hmm. MA. What were you unlearning? Like what, was the, what were the assumptions you had made that you had to discard or try to, try to live without? I think what I was unlearning was everything that had to do with, with naturalism, everything that had to do with fake scenery, um, with bi- making a pretty picture with um, everything that I'd kind of seen in books and was told, this is how you design in a proscenium theater, um, and and throw that all away and say there is no, this is how you do it. You can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. You can approach You can approach the relationship between the actor and the audience, which is what we're talking about visually in any way you are inspired to. Uh, it does, I know that we've talked about uh, this idea of a pretty picture before on the podcast. I think Sean Kerwin and I had a discussion about that. And it, it is such a drive, especially if you have a studio, I mean, you do art history and you learn about how people, about composition and about balance and about, not mm-hmm. only function like um, structurally within shapes in the picture, but color balance and light and everything else. Um, how do you reconcile that with telling a story in theater? And how, um, like when you say not creating a p- pretty picture, is this naturalism, or is is that the pretty picture, or is it um, balance and conflict and everything on stage you're trying to kind of turn on its head or approach differently? It can be any of those things. I mean, it, the a parallel would be how lighting was taught. When I was at school, it was like 45, 45 degree this, 45 degree that. Cool on one side, warm on the other side. I say, chuck it out. And I have had more battles with more lighting designers. And I'm sure I have offended most lighting designers in this country and gotten on their nerves because I don't like what they're doing. Um, so that it's kind of the equivalent of that. Just throw it out and begin with an inspiration of what does this play mean? What is it saying to me? You know? Yeah. What relationship between the characters? Where's the tension? And how am I going to show the tension? You know? It, it's, it's beginning in the, from the heart of the material, not from the frame of the theater. Uh, the, you know, speaking as a former lighting designer, I know that um, when, we, when we are taught lighting, or like this McCandless method of warm, cool 45, um, I remember having a conversation uh, when I was first, um, when I, was, I was doing a show at Buddy's, which is a good connection because it's the old TWP mm-hmm. space, uh, Buddy's and Bad Times. And uh, uh, I was working with a director who I won't name, but we were doing one of the early, one of the first season, one of the first shows in the first season of that space. 
And it was a very uh, stark show. It was a very non-realistic show, uh, expressionistic, not linear. And I had lit it very starkly. Lots of side light, lots of hard shadows. And and uh, I had to pull it. I was asked to pull it back because there were, they, we need to see more faces. And uh, I, it felt, I felt so strongly about the work that I had already done and my response to it. Now, mind you, I wasn't very good, you know, diplomat because I was early in my career, <laughs> very wedded to the, you know, my ego's very wedded to the work that I was doing. <laughs> you know, I got, there was a bit of conflict around this, but, and I always, and I felt that adding more of that fill light in and seeing more faces and like, like spreading the spill around the stage to accommodate that, uh, was a bit of a, felt like a bit of a betrayal, but, um, I certainly struggled with, because that was the idea that we were trying to, that I was ha- asking, being asked to create was, was to bring more of that like 45 fill, get rid of mm-hmm. shadows so you can see expressions on people's faces. Um, and so that kind of struggle is kind of real. I, there was also, I remember Kevin Lamott telling me about a story uh, where they made the show very, very dark. It was, uh, I think it was a glass menagerie at the Royal Alex and they got like, there was hate mail <laughs> sent to the theater because it was so dark. Because it was so dark. Now yeah. that has to do with the audience's kind of relation to that. How, um, I mean, this is all sort of to say the audience's relation to the play is not just about where they're sitting, but where you're asking them, how you're asking them to sort of stretch themselves to see the show. Like how, like, like asking to look at something differently. Um, do you take that into account? Like how much do you feel like audience reaction informs your decisions and about how sensitive you have to be to who you're asking, um, how you're asking them to change themselves to, or to adapt mm-hmm. to see what you're working on? I think if you keep as your foremost um, idea that what you're doing is about the actor. You can't ever lose sight of that. And the ego, and I took these master classes with Josef Svoboda years ago. And he was one of the things he would emphasize, and his lighting was pretty crazy, you know, um, is that you, you can't put your ego ahead of that. So in a case where you can't see faces, well, there's some validity about that because that is very hard because then the audience member is kind of, again, being asked to go another step. And I don't believe in that. I think it's very important to consider what an audience member already is doing going into the theater, you know? Um, And it's tempting. Believe me, there are so many shows I've wanted to have a lot darker and a lot um, streakier and a lot uh, more dramatic. And sometimes you have to give a little bit of that up. And if you have a really great lighting designer, they can give you all that and more. Uh, we spoke uh, as well at the beginning. Your uh, most your work mostly has confined, been confined to set and costumes, uh, but you have done some lighting, and you were asked to do it in the context of I think opera. Mm-hmm. Do you want to describe that experience and how that came <laughs> about and how you sort of approached that? And it was a Dutch director, um, the one I had worked with on Tales of Hoffman, and we were doing a Barber of Seville in 
Detroit, actually in Michigan at the Michigan, whatever it's called, Michigan School of Music, I think. And um, I didn't even, I didn't look at my letter of agreement very well. And when, when we started working, he said, well, you're the lighting designer. And I said, what? I'm also doing the costumes and the set. And he said, ah, you can do it, no problem. So I kind of did it, and this is also a while ago before we had nearly as much technical help or digital help, you know, and I was filling it all out by hand, and I could do it. But it was made easier because we decided the concept was the, the opera was taking place in a, in a kind of downscaled Italian film studio. And so parts of the set would just move for convenience for the camera somewhere else. I did a lot of work, and I was really one of the pioneering designers in projection, like a lot, very early on. And I'll tell you a bit more about that. And so we had huge panning projectors, um, and the concept supported us having lights on stage. So when my lighting didn't work out that well as I had envisioned theoretically and practically, I just moved the lights around on stage. You know, we had big, we had booms and lights. I think we had some big floodlights. We just kind of shifted them around. So I was lucky there, but it was pretty scary. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Okay, so tell me about your projection work. When did you first start incorporating projections into your uh, work? Already when I was at TWP, we had the old film you know, we'd have the kind of a cranking up of film or slides. And then I worked um, at YPT on one of the very early incarnations of Jacob Tutu and the Hooded Fang. And Harry Freiner, I think, did the lighting for that. And I decided, oh, no, that, that was the second. That was one. Um, I'm sure he lit them both, though. And then um, Jacob Tutu and the dinosaur. And we had something like 24 projectors on a lighting pipe, each aimed, because those projectors in the olden days couldn't, didn't have a lot of power and couldn't cover a lot of area. But if you could get enough and you put them on a lighting pipe and you could cover only a small part of the stage, you could do it. And I used to paint them all by hand. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's 35 mil. It's not the penny frame, like the four by five. No, these are the little Kodak, the little Kodak (laughs) projectors. Um, And then I um, tried experimenting with different materials uh, already in the the TWP days with, um, you know, projecting onto moving materials, non-linear materials, non-screen-like materials, things that were curved or stretchy or round. And I became quite fascinated with the idea of moiré. And so I experimented with projection and moiré, the combination of it. It never really went anywhere (laughs) because moiré is so fussy. It is something that we kind of struggle like to, to get rid of I when, know. You're, when you're going through scrims and things, right? No, I was stringing, making stringed screens, slightly offset to create the moiré pattern. So a lot of things that we now can do with video that are just so much easier. 
It is actually remarkable. Uh, I, we were talking about Dr. Silver in the break, and I uh, and I had I actually went on about it uh, uh, in a in an episode uh, in a few episodes ago when this will come out um, uh, about how remarkable remarkably integrated it is now. Like you mm-hmm. won't even. Like I think when it's done successfully, gone are the days when you sort of go, oh, video, oh, there's mm-hmm. a video show. Oh, no, it's all like it's all part of one visual look now. It's so well done. Like I'm so impressed by so much video these days. Um, let's talk about. Let's just move. Um, first of all, is there anything from your philosophy or, or your approach that you want to that we haven't talked about yet um, that we want to that you want to mention? No. No. I mean, in a pedagogical sense, keeping your eyes open for students, you know, keeping Mm. your eyes open on the world so that whatever you see, you has possibilities on the stage. Right. So what happened to me was on that King Street streetcar project, one day I was walking along there in the early summer and I saw this stuff there that they were growing um, growing grass and greenery out of it, but it looked like a mushed up kind of felt thing. And I looked at the, the, the name of where it came from and I looked them up. It was about two inches thick and it was basically black. Um, I could tell that it was something recycled. So I phoned the guy up. It's a, it was a Belgian company, but a Canadian distributor. And it's called Stared and it's made of recycled interior car parts so all the stuff from the inside of cars and for me having looked at that just it's as if certain productions might just are incubating back there in your mind there was no direct connection and then I was thinking Harlem Duet uh, at the Tarragon and I want it to be earthy and be a bit soft and I want it to look like the cotton fields are buried in it. How about that? So the important thing for all designers is to always have your eyes open. Mm -hmm. The strangest things might translate into something beautiful. It is remarkable. I didn't go have this experience. I went to Ryerson Theatre School. But at York, these kind of design uh, classes... um, the, I forget the it's called elements of design or something where you're creating. You're asked to go out and research uh, a specific period, and you create a claw uh, like a collage. It's quite a remarkable project that goes on forever, um, and you're you're sort of developing your design eye about how things all fit together and how what what constitutes part of a period. And uh, really, I mean, what that's, I think that's trying to teach in connection to what you're talking about is that you are, as a designer, you're asked to solve problems um, well, by, you know, in this contrived world of the theater by bringing in elements from outside. You really are absorbing ideas constantly. Like you, when you develop your eye and you look uh, at materials or look at com- like composition or the way that things are solved in the real world, like you're never off. You're always absorbing these ideas and they're ready to be like, as you deepen that well of experience, you get more ideas you can pull from every day, right? Yes, and Svoboda used to say, you've got to keep 99% of those things in your pocket. Right. 
Yeah, that's true too. You don't want to yeah. overreach, right? And then sometime you might want to pull one out. But if it isn't the right idea for that, then keep it in there. Right. Yeah, excellent. Okay, let's, we're just in the last kind of 10 minutes. Let's just broaden to theater in general. And I know that you had you have a lot of thoughts about kind of the historical, political, social aspect of theater. Um, what? How does this intersect with, like... What can be a nice diversion for some for people? Like it, like a, it can be apolitical. It can be just an aesthetic experience. Um, why do you think it's important to 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 have, have these elements be part of theater? Uh, and how have you come to those conclusions uh, in your own work? You mean the more frivolous, what we would call the more entertaining? or uh, Yeah, the, but I, I, I guess yeah. how do you, like, why do you think it's important that historical and social ideas are a component of theater, and where do they belong, and and um, I guess why, how do you how do you bring that into your work as well? I guess by the choice of work you do, ultimately. But, I think mostly yeah. by the choice. Yeah. Um, well, they are the theater is a reflection of who we are. And I think it's at its most powerful when it is, a, when it is that sort of cliche of the mirror. Um, I think all art has the function of changing us, of deepening us, of humanizing us. And the theater is a part of that. I was in New York last week and saw some extremely powerful theater, not just, but... One thing we saw was quite entertaining, was just a really good storytelling. But then we saw Waverly Gallery, which is about Alzheimer's. Um, so there, not everything needs to be, but I think when you see theater that really hits you emotionally and aesthetically, then you remember it. You take that with you and... It does deepen, you know, us. I think it's essential in that way. But I wouldn't say just theater. I would say all art, storytelling, writing, you know, has that function and that obligation. Mm-hmm. One opinion, like one, one common approach to art in general, I think, in society, or one view of art is as a distraction from kind of mm-hmm. the horrors or dissolution or the kind of humdrum, maybe on the other end of the spectrum, um, you know, ways of living. Um, what do you feel is the power of theater and maybe art in general? Like, what do you think that it all has to be purposeful? Um, maybe I'm answering my own question here. Uh, but ha- like, like, what is the, what should theater be striving to do, um, and how? Uh, maybe I should just end it there. What do you think theater <laughs> should be striving? I tend to get down these tiny little cul de sacs of questioning. This is a big, big, answers. big question. Yeah. I think at its best, it 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 does all of that. You know, it's not didactic in the sense of a lecture or a political demonstration or a, um, and, but I think if in its frivolity it also 
reflect something about humanity, then that's great. That's what one would strive for. Okay, well, let's just land then on new theater artists. Um, uh, you you did, you know, summers in uh, at the Vancouver School of Art to sort of have a studio practice. Um, what do you think is important for people besides this developing a vision and the ability to see things in a way that is constructive? Um, what do you think is important for people to focus on when they're uh, training as an artist? Uh, first of all, we'll stop there. What do you think is important for them to focus on when training as an artist? I think to go and see a lot of theater. To see art, to see unrelated things, you know, um, to expose yourself to as much theater, as much artwork, um, music. I, I, I have a hard time with YouTube social media because I feel like it's too overwhelming of the senses for me sometimes you know I think um, there needs to be a certain amount of calm and a certain amount of serenity inside the mind inside the creative mind in order to create and I think that's a danger we have um, right now or, or we are evolving into a kind of dangerous where there's so much from the outside, there's not as much room for the blooming from the inside. Um, I, mindfulness is a practice I'm trying to, you know, in, in, mm-hmm. in mesh with my life as well. And I think that that's, that goes in hand with the being, being present for experience, uh, to experience the world as well. You need to be able to to be there all the time, or to be at least be in yourself, and mm-hmm. social media is so distracting. Um, and do you think so? Uh, do you think it's it's still reasonable for people to want to have a career in theater? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you specifically in design, or uh, yeah, I think uh, I think design and absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think there are probably different ways of going about it. There's more of a about getting together with a group of colleagues and creating your own projects. Um, You still have the old kind of dream of somebody discovering you. Well, that's what happened with Come From Away. You know, there it still exists very, very much so. And I think the... um, uh, But I think a lot of it is luck. Like, I wouldn't say, oh, the cream rises to the top. That's not how it goes in life. Um, sometimes it might, but a lot of it is luck. A lot of it is being in the right place at the right time. A lot of it is knowing somebody, having the right connections, or being able to network, or graduating with friends that you can create together, you know, create new work. When I look around, I see a lot of young people creating their own work, writing, producing, designing their own work. And I think there's lots of room for that. Now, how well 10, 20, 30 years down the line you can make a living? I'm not sure. You know, we we won't know that. The world's changing far too fast. And I, I do know that uh, people probably have to supplement their theater income, whether it's with you know, other work, and hopefully it'll be related work, or whether it's um, uh, 
you know, doing something completely different. Um, television or film, a lot of designers still supplement their income with TV work and film work and um, commercial work. But I think you shouldn't, no one should be deterred from a life in the theater. I go in there. Thank you so much. That's great. Okay, you're welcome. And that was designer Astrid Jansen speaking to me from her home in Toronto, Ontario in November of 2018. Next time, the start of My Vancouver Files, an interview with theater design consultant Scott Miller. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with a voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at thetitleblockca and on facebook.com slash thetitleblockpodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetitleblock at gmail.com or like Steve Lucas, you can angrily text me directly in the middle of the night. Don't forget that if you like the show, support us on patreon.com and feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers or listen to it while you try to think of creative ways to use those leftover over lasagna containers, or indeed creative ways to end the Title Block podcast. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on the Title Block. Title Block.